Good evening. This is the Laughing Satirist again with Statistical Abuse, a delightful tale of scented soap balls, television science, and sudden death syndrome in middle-aged white males. Statistical Abuse. On a quiet street in Wildwood Acres, a golf and residential community outside Fort Myers, Florida, recently retired high school principal Arthur Sims, age 60, was found dead in his downstairs bathroom. An expression of almost unimaginable horror distorted his features, a horror that could only be escaped by death. The following week in Boston, Star orthopedic surgeon Brian Colgate, 43, was found dead in his office lavatory from no apparent cause, a similar expression frozen on his face. Three days later, Douglas Allenton, 54, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and founder of Exquisite Microsystems, was discovered drowned in the commode of his mirror-paneled master bath with a grimace so horrible that a special team from the coroner's office, warned not to look at his face or in the mirrors, was called to remove his body. There were no signs of forced entry or a struggle, and no valuables were missing. Investigators would have attributed to these deaths to heart attack or stroke, except for one striking fact. In each case, scented soap balls were found strewn about the bodies as if the decedents were the subject of some sort of bizarre ritual murder. Nevertheless, to devotees of talk shows and crime blogs, they suggested a new syndrome, pervasive and sinister, precisely because the victims did not display any known panoply of symptoms. As a forensic epidemiologist, now this calls for a definition, forensic epidemiology, the use of statistics to manipulate juries, consumers, and public opinion is sometimes confused with forensic entomology, the use of bug stories to convince jurors and consumers that an opponent's breakfast cereal is contaminated by weevils or similar savories, or forensic epistemology, the use of personal attacks on an opponent to seize the moral high ground wherever votes, money, or tax relief is at stake. So, as a forensic epidemiologist, my job is to provide statistical support for such speculations in the hope that a new product, service, or support group will emerge. In my years as the forensic epidemiologist for a major TV network, our news team transformed itself from the last to know that a wave of colds or sore throats was sweeping the nation's elementary schools to the first to announce fearsome new diseases coincident with the sweeps and negotiations with our sponsors. From apples doused with alar to power tower cancer, Television newsrooms have defined more diseases with fewer actual victims than all other investigators in the history of nosology, that is, the cl classification of diseases, propelling every outbreak, driving every press conference, is forensic epidemiology, 
the science of forcibly linking disparate phenomena for entertainment and profit. Although internet searches and casual conversations at the winter 2017 conference of the National College of Forensic Epidemiologists produced considerable anecdotal evidence, a correlation between scented soap balls and death by fright appeared to be a stretch. Furthermore, the victims were uniformly white, male, and upper middle to upper class. When I proposed a short segment for our late night news magazine to test the waters, my producer said that if anyone gave a damn about middle-aged wasps, everybody would be doing specials on prostate cancer. Chastened, I put the project on hold, but continued to look for more data. Despite repeated electronic searches using the best Boolean logic, no new cases appeared during the winter months. I had given up my research and almost forgotten the project until last August, when Louise announced she had booked us into a delightful old inn beside the lake at Charlevoix for a non-refundable fee of $3,700. Like many of my contemporaries, I had reached an unspoken accommodation with my spouse that I would provide the money and she would dissipate it. Thus, our separate activities were maximized, while the prospect for any meaningful interaction was minimized. When acquaintances asked if we were busy, a decorating term adopted by the upper class to describe frenetic and meaningless activity, we both could proudly answer, yes. The only time our lifelines intersected was on family vacations. Because these fell into the loss column, I left them to her to schedule, hoping she would forget in the summer rush of flower shows, poolside fundraisers, tennis matches, and sunburn clinics. Traditionally, August is a slow news month when the staffs of the leading medical journals are hunkered down at Hilton Head or Hyannisport, dousing themselves with Long Island tea and coconut oil and dreaming up next season's blockbuster discoveries. Thus, like a sleepwalker, I found myself putting on my new white walking shoes, my first pair of shorts since an ill-advised interlude as a Boy Scout in the early 70s, and dutifully following Louise out of the Meerschaum, our quaintly named abode, into the busy street of a typical American vacation spot. To my amazement, I soon made the most important discovery of my professional career, defining a new and theretofore unrecognized syndrome and explaining the apparent coincidence of scented soap balls surrounding the bodies of so many dead white middle-aged men. For in the streets of Charlevoix, I was as indistinguishable from the other men as I would have been on Fifth Street in Naples, Gallery Row at Palm Beach, or the shops in La Jolla Cove. Pale limbs protruding from designer chic, masked by clip-on sunglasses and baseball caps. We follow our wives through Potemkin villages so similar they could all have been created by the same set designer. Pretending interest, we peer at watercolors of old rowboats on the strand, carved wooden blocks said to teach slow children their colors, 
and tongs and bikinis that will never grace anyone we know. Pretending to enjoy our leisure, we sit on benches and watch the passing scene with as much interest as a dilettante in a cafe, pretending to read a newspaper in a language he does not know. Should hunger strike, there is saltwater taffy by the pound to remove fillings and crumple bridge work, or ice cream cones to tumble with hideous plops onto the laps and sneakers of the careless. When lunchtime finally arrives, it's off to the old harborside fish house for the catch of the day and an analysis of resort fashions by our wives or significant others, washed down with a carafe of martinis. By mid-afternoon, we wander like Dante through realms reserved for those who are without hope, exhausted, forlorn, beyond the reach of stimulant or philosophy, we are prey to the siren luring us onto the rocks. Oh, there you are, dear. Come along. I found something just perfect for... At those awful words, men who have depopulated cities by downsizings and layoffs, remade the world with their apps, impoverished whole nations by currency manipulations, revived American industry with new financial instruments, and replaced entire organ systems without drawing blood, bow their heads, and dumbly follow. Through potpourri thicker than Byzantine incense, past beaded sweaters that would purchase a hundred Manhattan islands, around children who jerk and strut more terribly than Milton's fallen angels, we lurch on, but the what? To pastel piles of scented soap balls, to bright, clear jars of scented soap balls, the cups and cabinets and little dishes all filled with scented soap balls. As the potpourri lifts, they emerge more clearly, some fist-sized, some small enough to be mistaken for jawbreakers, some with reliefs of vines or flowers, some as smooth as a Petoskey stone. Reeking of lavender and myrrh and all the flavors of Kool-Aid, they conjure up new theories of personal hygiene. <clears throat> no longer are bacteria and viruses the enemy. No more need we fear fungi or even body odor. In the gloriously delicate domain of the scented soap ball, the only threat is the uncoordinated bathroom, where towels don't match washcloths, toilet paper clashes with toothbrushes, white enamel suggests a public facility, and nothing perches atop the tank to draw it all together. Both chastened and inspired, our wives fill bags with scented soap balls, sometimes ordering whole cases delivered by air freight. The sweet powdery smell intoxicates our weary traveler. Seduced, he reaches for his credit card. Too exhausted to object, too intoxicated to reason, he follows her outside, carrying the instruments of his own destruction, clutched in a paper bag, and wearing the same expression as when carrying his dog's freshly bagged droppings to a public receptacle. After a week of sun-poisoned, alcohol-drenched, soul-starving leisure, we emerge from the wormwood of vacation to the bright, banal light of our careers. 
We do not, however, return relaxed and refreshed with philosophy and new insights to participate in the human condition. More driven than before, obsessed with the coming credit card bills, we immerse ourselves in work, golf, investments, and networking because we have glimpsed the terrible futility for which we live. Like rats on a psychologist's wheel, we run faster and faster, not to taste the sweet, dewy liquid in the stopper dangling above us, but to forget we are trapped in a cage. As soon as I return to the studio, I search the databases again for associations between scented soap balls and unexplained deaths. This time, success. Since Memorial Day weekend, 1,738 Caucasian men aged 40 to 68 have been found for no apparent reason in bathrooms, surrounded by scented soap balls. Handshaking, I cross-checked my data to determine whether a similar number of unexplained bathroom deaths occurred in the absence of scented soap balls. During the same period, 7,473 persons of other ages, races, and sexes had died in bathrooms, nearly all in bathtub falls or electrocutions while using appliances in the shower. Only middle-aged white men were at risk from scented soap balls. Every great epidemiologist hopes to isolate a physiological mechanism to account for the statistical correlation. Here I was stymied until the weekend I wandered into our upstairs bathroom and found the toilet tank topped by a crystal vase of scented soap balls. Finishing my business, I picked up a fine purple specimen to wash my hands. Impervious to moisture, refusing the lather, it brought back horrid memories of that awful week in Charlevoix. Angered and confused, I was spinning it faster and faster when suddenly it spurted out of my fingers into the toilet bowl. Instinctively, I grabbed for it, lost my balance, and fell. For the first time, I was thankful for, for Louise's padded seat. Without it, I would have become another statistic. Damn you, I cried, jerking the flusher with a vengeance. I leaned back, panting to contemplate my near-miraculous escape. Pulling myself up on the side of the commode, I saw the soap ball staring up at me with its one purple eye from where it had seated itself in the hole, threatening to stop up the toilet and flood the floor in vengeance. I snatched the leering demon from his lair and ran to the basement, where I hit it again and again with my hammer on my work table. Like an unshakable nightmare, it stretched from shape this hideous shape. Screaming, I doused it with charcoal lighter fluid and set it afire. With an angry fist, something flared off its surface before it settled down into a purple blob of flower-scented hydrocarbons. I probed it gently with a screwdriver, and, little and a little piece of clear paper peeled off. It had been shrink-wrapped. Then the soap hardened over my screwdriver and my investigation was cut short. Is something wrong, dear? Louise called from the stairs, the most horrifying words a married man can hear. 
No, dear, I replied. I'm just down here working on a model airplane. Maybe you should check the upstairs bathroom. Water's coming through the kitchen ceiling. In my rage, I had failed to note that I had knocked over the tank top vase and another soap ball had fallen it into the bowl, stopping it up. That morning's adventure cost $5,964.50, including plasters, plumbers, painting, and wallpaper. Louise uses any household disaster as a reason to redecorate. As the parade of tradesmen wandered through, I shook myself off in the den, wondering how the nation could safely dispose of hundreds of millions of scented soap balls once it was aware of the danger. The problem of atomic waste paled beside that of the scented soap balls. With a half-life longer than the slowest decaying element, they will curse the earth for millennia, luring future archaeologists to their dooms. Perhaps we could use soap balls to line landfills to prevent toxic waste from escaping, or seal them in great lead containers and dump them into the ocean depths, or even pack them into spaceships and blast them to the ends of the universe to warn aliens away from our polluted planet. The physiological and psychological mechanisms of death by scented soap ball were now clear. Burned out, frustrated, and hungover, the upper-class, middle-aged white male returns to a state or penthouse condo from vacation to find his presence in the most intimate places preempted by scented soap balls. If he tries to use them, they resist. If he flushes them, they stop up the toilet. If he drops them into the sink, they clog the disposal. If he does nothing, they leer at him from the first act of the morning until the last nocturnal awakening, provoking nightmares of vacations past and all the other symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Elated, I met with my editor and the producer. We were sitting on top of the biggest science story since global warming. Middle-aged man, sudden death syndrome, abbreviated MAMSDS. With computer graphics and intimate biographies of several of the recently deceased, I made the most important pitch of my career. It failed. My producer went out for coffee and never returned, leaving an assistant to share the hard facts of television economics. If it were just scented soap balls, she explained, we might run the story. Scented soap balls, however, were more than a seaside curiosity. They are the very archetype of the American consumer product. Like everything from PCs to prophylactics, they are made to be sold rather than used. If we unmask them as a secret engine of death and despair, what product would be safe? What advertiser inviolate? More importantly, what sponsor would not cancel? What matter that their runoff killed more crabs than all the pesticides in Chesapeake Bay or the odor produced more histamines than all the dust mites and cat dander in the country. Who would mourn the fallen when the country was thrown into an economic collapse worse than the Great Depression? Far better that a few nameless soldiers fall than the whole army be thrown into confusion.
Someday, when my pension is vested and my options have all been exercised, I may return the Senate soap balls and MAM SDS. For now, however, I content myself with lesser matters, such as a statistical correlation between genocide in Myanmar and the proliferation of a popular dog chew in this country. Yet I remain haunted by scented soap balls, more as a metaphor for our times than as an instrument of death. When Caesar rode triumphant through the cheering crowds in Rome, a slave stood behind him in the chariot, whispering, Remember, you are mortal. Today we have publicists and spin doctors and airbrushes to spare us that cold voice. Only on the family vacation, when we are most alone, do we wasp males see the scented soap ball and realize that we too will someday perish. Our gigabytes are as delicate as the cloud that carries them, vulnerable to every power surge and hacker. The fortune and reputation of a nanosecond offer little comfort to the seeker after eternity. Scented soap balls may well outlast the information age, and like the fallen friezes of the forum, be all that remain to recall our vanished glory to barbaric successors. Statistical abuse first appeared in satire, a print magazine. It would be a real challenge for you librarians to find a copy now. Maybe if you bid it up high enough on eBay, someone will come up with a copy. Oh, by the way, it's another by McGavern. Our next story is My Life in Genealogy, a satire of applied genealogy. Applied genealogy is the study of an elderly person's family fortune in order to separate them from it. For novices, this is a how-to manual. For long-time practitioners, it is a seldom-seen nod of approval. Until then, goodbye.